Welcome to the Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Podcast on Radio Free Nashville. 107.1 and 103.7 and streaming live at RadioFreeNashville.org. Preparation for war and war itself pollute the earth. And the U.S. military is the number one organizational polluter on the planet, as you said. That was Dr. Jim Ryan of the Veterans for Peace Climate Crisis and Militarism Project. We are not a species that can be trusted with nuclear weapons. We can make them but we can't manage them. And that was Dr. Zia Meehan talking about the continuing efforts of Daniel Ellsberg to bring attention to the threat of nuclear catastrophe. And you'll hear more from both of them. But first, my name is Jim Waldgemuth, and I'm here with fellow Vietnam veteran Harvey Bennett. We're members of Veterans for Peace. Veterans for Peace is an international organization of military veterans and allies whose collective efforts are to build a culture of peace, humanity, equality, and justice. Just go to veteransforpeace.org. This radio show and podcast is on stations across the country thanks to the Pacifica Radio Network. We're also on SoundCloud, Anchor Podcast, Spotify, and your phone podcast app. Just search Veterans for Peace. The Veterans for Peace Radio Hour and Radio Free Nashville are supported in part by you, the listener, because it is you that keeps Radio Free Nashville going. And as a result, this radio show is then picked up by the Pacifica Radio Network so that we are heard across the country. So if you think this work is important, if you think what we do is important, if you think what Radio Free Nashville is doing is important, just go to RadioFreeNashville.org and click on the Donate button and keep Harvey and I on the air in every time zone. Of course, if you support the work of Veterans for Peace, you can also go to our site at veteransforpeace.org. So today we have Dr. Jim Ryan, uh, Veterans for Peace, Climate Crisis and Military Project, adjunct professor at Wayne State University and member of Veterans for Peace, chapters 074 in Southeast Michigan. We wanted to get an environmental view because it was Earth Day. I'm just worried that Earth Day has lost some of its environmental punch. So I went to some uh, a low-key sort of thing yesterday in a, a suburb of uh, Detroit. You know, a lot of folks there, different organizations promoting uh, environmental awareness. There was a group from local a nuclear plant that's uh, been trying to get it shut down before it uh, radiates uh, the Great Lakes. I understand Coke Pink had larger scale things going on in Washington, D.C., which is what you would expect. Uh, one, one thing, though, we were the only folks that were talking about the, the links between militarism and climate change. Uh, we had our Veterans for Peace flag out there. I had my banner, uh, our banner, which says uh, U.S. militarism fuels the climate crisis, which is uh, an eye catcher and a conversation starter. And, you know, we talked to a number of people and they certainly agreed that the Pentagon was getting too much money that could be spent on climate change or health care or education or whatever. But they hadn't really thought about uh, the impacts of militarism and the fact that uh, our military emits so much CO2. And yes, indeed, we do. We spend over 20 times more on the military annually than we do even with the recent Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, the military budget is going to go up and the the Inflation Reduction Act portion of the climate change is not. So, I mean, that was, uh, we, we had some good conversations and people wanted some more information and, and uh, grabbed some of our pamphlets. So, and yet people knew that they were very chagrined about the amount of money we're spending on the military, but they weren't connecting how that is impacting the climate. I looked through my, you know, my New York Times today and yesterday, and there certainly wasn't any mention of militarism and climate change. There's articles about Ukraine and stuff like that. I didn't see anything in the Washington Post. And I even paged through my uh, copy of uh, Greta Thunberg's new book, The Climate Book, which is this no. uh, series of essays by different mm-hmm. authors. And then she sort of throws in her comment. I, mean, I just scanned it. None of the titles looked like they were, like were going to relate to militarism at all. Probably a next project for our climate crisis and militarism project. But, Does uh, the Detroit area have any of the big four or five of the Pentagon industries? Because everybody has, uh, you know, some some war industry 
yeah. in the state. I, I haven't made a big catalog of uh, what is present in Michigan, but I, I I do recall that in the New York in a uh, Times Magazine article, I think it was last year about the greening of the military. They had brought a Bradley fighting vehicle to some facility in the outskirts of Detroit to green it up, and they had lowered the you know, the emissions or the mileage or increase the mileage from uh, 0.8 miles per gallon to 0.9 miles per gallon. <laughs> oh, boy. And, but but they didn't say how much money they spent doing that. But the conclusion of the article was the only way you're going to really get substantial emission reductions is to shrink the military, not to greenwash it. And I think that's one of the problems, even on independent news. It's never brought up that the military is the biggest organizational contributor to the climate catastrophe. We know mainstream isn't going to get the word out. They're, they're complicit. How do we get the word out? Yeah. Well, as you said, mainstream media hasn't picked it up. I mean, Amy Goodman has certainly addressed this in Democracy Now! The Peace and Planet News, the latest issue, has a picture of Greta Thunberg getting arrested and... Uh, I think the lead that I'll quote it here. What if Swedish environmental activist Greta Thunberg took aim at the role of the military industrial complex in provoking climate change? Preparation for war and war itself pollute the earth. And the US military is the number one organizational polluter on the planet, as you said. Essentially they said, you know, what would what would happen if if she would mention this to her millions of followers? Mm -hmm. uh, I think that would make a significant thing. And I'll yeah, that, that's what we need to get. I mean, I think even beyond this, the uh, greenhouse gas influence is the environmental destruction, uh, especially with these, you know, massive war exercises that they have in the Pacific that kill, you know, thousands upon thousands of dolphins. And, uh, they don't know how many whales have killed, but you think about what, these exercises with thousands and thousands of explosions, not to mention all these sonar uh, transducers that they've implanted on the seafloor. And we haven't begun to see the long-term effects of that on migrations of uh, marine animals, especially the mammals and uh, turtles. So, Jim, you were in on that Code Pink webinar on war is not green. And, you know, some of the testimony from Guam and from Hawaii is just mm -hmm. staggering, you know, the devastation that it's causing uh, above and beyond the atmospheric issues. Well, that, that's certainly correct. And uh, the majority of uh, Superfund sites in the United States are related to military bases. Getting getting back to the links between climate and the, and the military, there is Bill Christofferson in the, had an op-ed on the front page of the Wisconsin Examiner about how ill militaryism affects our our environment. Uh, and across the pond, Extinction Rebellion is having a four-day event that's going to include David Collins, who is a Veterans for Peace person, who's in our Climate Crisis and Militarism Project. He's going to be speak one of the speakers, but more than 200 organizations are supporting it. It's uh, trying to have enough people to surround the parliament. That's really more cognizant of the links between military and climate change overseas, which I'm surprised why Greta Thunberg hasn't hasn't picked that up. I have another project where I'm giving Nita Crawford's book, Pentagon, Climate Change and War. I gave it to my member of Congress, uh, Sri Tandahar. So I think it's the first time I've ever given a millionaire a book as a gift. <laughs> uh, I've also given it to Gary Peters, who's high up on the Armed Services Committee. We've had a meeting with uh, Representative Tandahar, and we're going to set up a meeting with his staff uh, sometime later in the spring to discuss this issue. Rashida already had a copy of the book, so I didn't have to give her <laughs> one. I've spoken to her about it, so I mean, <laughs> she's certainly up on this. Uh, and I mentioned to my representative uh, to become a co-sponsor on Barbara Lee and Mark Pocan's uh, reduced the Pentagon budget by $100 billion. Reducing the Pentagon budget by hundred billion—that's it would bring it from eight hundred and some billion to seven hundred and some billion. So we're kind of back to where we were a year ago. You know, the Republicans want to uh, 
lower the deficit. So that's a very good way of doing it is the most bloated part of the budget is the Pentagon. Oh, that's a good point. I can call Mark Green tomorrow. That's right. That's it. Tell him the co-sponsor, Barbara Lee's, I'm sure they're bosom buddies. So (laughs) at least they might be able willing to cut some of the money going to Ukraine. Well, again, Ukraine's a drop in the bucket compared to the whole Pentagon budget. But uh, what what's been the impact of this Ukraine debacle on the climate? Of course, it's adding emissions. But uh, so my my background, I've I've written papers on the effects of climate change on the uh, petroleum industry. And one of the studies that I did was I've looked at how there's a fellow by the name of Burke who who's come up with it's not really a model, but he had a paper out predicting that business as usual by 2100, the global uh, production product GDP, but a per capita base would go down 23%. The uh, studies of the impacts of climate change have predicted that the United States would have a drop in per capita uh, with business as usual, I think about eight, 18% or so in the teens somewhere. This is that nothing is done. Well, I, I looked at this to see if this would impact the petroleum industry because this would, if the GDP goes down then the economy goes down then the demand for uh, oil and gas goes down and it really doesn't affect it all that much. So I, I was interested in seeing what BP was looking at and what their projections were. And this is probably getting really into the weeds uh, for 2023. And they predicted that the global GDP will go down. The WTO has also predicted this, mm-hmm. uh, that, that global GDP is gonna go down because of the conflict in, uh, in Ukraine and the higher petroleum prices. And that effect would actually cause a, a, a decrease in emissions globally, but not enough to get anywhere near where we need to get. So it, it might, on the big scale, cause emissions to go lower, but that's not going to help the folks in Ukraine. And I think the biggest negative feature of the war in Ukraine is it's boosting spending on military uh, all around the world, uh, you know, NATO. Japan, uh, we're raising our uh, budget. And then, of course, China raises their budget. <clears throat> our military says, well, we have to raise our budget because China's raising their budget. And it's you know, <clears throat> sort of a circular logic there. But, you know, I, I want to mention that uh, uh, the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project is going to be having, is going to be addressing this issue uh, beyond Earth Day, what we call it. And it's going to be on Saturday, May 13th. It would be 3 p.m. Central Time. And there'll be something in the Veterans for Peace website that'll be coming out on this. We'll have a series of, essentially we'll be talking about what we're doing at the different projects we're looking at. Cindy Peister and, and her going to the COP 20, you know, 27, what we're going to try and do maybe with COP 28 and things like that. Let the folks know how they can get to that portion of the website, of the Veterans for Peace website. Okay, well, they go to the Veterans for Peace website and uh, look at actions mm-hmm. and look for uh, national projects. They'll find the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project. Or they could just do a web search of Climate Crisis and Militarism Project and you probably pull up our website. Now, one of the projects we have, and I'm sure you folks, well, everybody has one of these, is an air show is a demonstrable waste of fuel and money. Gary Butterfield has been protesting out in San Diego. Uh, in fact, he's, he started a project. When you go to the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project, you'll see a NOMAS, which means no more military air shows. You'll go there and get information uh, where to you know, get banners and things like that and some tips on what they do, like they stand outside of the uh, the air base or they would put banners on overpasses so that people would see them as they're coming into the air show. But also they're enlisting the local Sierra clubs and Thinkshin Rebellion and 350.org that are essentially ticked off about having the air shows polluting the air, you know, over where they live. So that's one way of you know trying to get people and environmental people involved in the military aspects, and there's you know it's a central place where you get get a lot of exposure. Good exposure is you know great and banners, but it doesn't seem to be slowing things down. Yeah, that's 
probably, you know, I came to that conclusion. That's why I got arrested a couple of times last year. And we're trying to see if we can do something like that in September and during COP28, which would be in November, December in New York. We're thinking of possibly having an encampment outside of the White House and having workshops for the people that are coming by, but also uh, talking to congressmen and uh, being involved in one of the fire drill Fridays. You know, if we can get Jane Fonda to step up or maybe one of her uh, friends. So that's one of the things we're doing, trying to get the notice out there. How dire is your perspective about climate? Well, whenever I see young people like yesterday at the Earth Fair, I said, well, you're going to lead a very interesting life if you make it to my age, especially seeing the things I'm seeing that I didn't expect to see in my lifetime. So it's, yeah, I'm, I'm extremely worried. So you know what? What can we do? You can talk to your members of Congress, your senators, and say, hey, we need to work on climate change, not spend more money on, uh, you know, revamping the, we, we spend more on uh, revamping our uh, nuclear arsenal than we spend annually on climate change. I think it's about, it's averaging out to be about 60 billion now. Whereas in the Inflation Reduction Act, it's only like uh, 38 billion per year, because that figure of uh, 3.79 uh, billion was for 10 years. We we need to reallocate those funds. So I, I'm a retired geologist and a veteran. I'm more worried about climate change than I'm worried about Russia or China. We don't need to be uh, building our arsenal and causing everybody else to build their military, just like that's what China's doing. We need to cooperate if, if we're going to get mankind through this, uh, this climate catastrophe. You know, that's, that's what, I'm, what concerns me at night. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And during the day. Does the, does the website, and that's the Climate Crisis and Militarism Project within the VeteransForPeace.org website, does it include some talking points so that we can... When we call our congressmen, we can target militarism and the military as a as a step in attacking climate the climate crisis. Well, there yeah, there is talking points, and also we we give presentations to to come up with talking points. One one of the things I want to do get funding for a uh, you know action in September. It'll be during uh, the time that Congress will be in session and we'll be going up with uh, folks to especially talk to people on the Armed Services Committee to talk about this issue. So we would really like to have veterans who have members of Congress, both Republican and Democrat, uh, on the Armed Services Committee to join us at this encampment. And hopefully we will have places for people to stay uh, other than in the tent. Tell your Local chapters, just, you know, plain citizens that uh, tell your congressperson that they're more worried about climate change than they're worried about the military from China or Russia or any other place. That's an excellent take. You know, thank, thank you, Jim. That's a great uh, overview and uh, gives us a lot to think about and work on. Okay, well, I appreciate you having me on and uh, happy post-Earth Day. And that was Dr. Jim Ryan of the Climate Action and Militarism Group of Veterans for Peace. So for the rest of the show, we're going to share a bit of a webinar hosted by Saving Humanity and Planet Earth, SHAPE, and its co-founder, Richard Falk. The webinar was supposed to include Daniel Ellsberg, but he was too ill. So they quickly arranged to have Dr. Zia Mian as one of the speakers, and he did a wonderful wonderful job of honoring Daniel Ellsberg and sharing his history, which of course then leads to the history of nuclear arms. So Harvey, what was your take? There was some real interesting stuff about the global South. Are we part of the global South? I mean, you know, they talk about it as though it's like just talking about the third world or something. Yeah. But I think it was uh, Richard Falk who and there, some of the other commentators said the basic problem is after World War II, of course, the victors designed everything so that they would have all the control. And mainly it was the U.S. because everybody else was destroyed. Destroyed. But the way the institutions were built uh, in terms of financially, the IMF, World Bank, all of that's yeah. U.S. controlled, you know, uh, and designed. <laughs> but the U.N., the fact that 
you know, they have the Security Council where every single member of the Security Council has a veto. Mm -hmm. If you're not on the Security Council, you're in the Global South because you don't, <laughs> you have no say <laughs> over what happens. <laughs> That's a new definition for the Global <laughs> South. <laughs> Sorry, Canada. Yeah. It's all about power. In the States, it's, it's behavior is creating the problem, having impunity. And the only way that, that can be affected is by the people in those states. Right. We do happen to live in one of those states. Yeah. How do you begin to change that? And, and you can you can see how much our own states, our own state listens to us. Well, to, they don't to, listen to us. us. They don't listen to the popular will, period. But they also clever enough to make sure that there's a, a significant critical mass of people in that country who see a benefit to themselves in the power relations. Mm -hmm. If they're not the primary beneficiaries, and we're talking about the manager, you know, professional class, upper middle class, you know. Right. So, so beyond power or uh, it's either power or financial. Yeah. But what, what this uh, essentially the, the problem is an ethical crisis. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King would call it a spiritual crisis. Right. But, you know, they don't want to get into that realm. So they're ethical. Whether yeah. you, you know, think of whether there's any spiritual component to anything or not, ethics we can all agree on. And his message was, the only way we can do it is to understand who we are as the species, for one thing, is the human species ethically driven. So he said, you know, we have to have a movement that causes people to reflect on what it is they believe, what what they really, what is important to them. And uh, all you have to do is look at how people live their lives to know what's important to them, no matter what they say. But the, the, what it boils down to is what are we willing to sacrifice? You know, any of the movements that have really made a difference, people have been willing to sacrifice. Right. And there's no better example of that than Daniel Ellsberg literally willing to spend the rest of his life in prison, try to change the course of this horrible criminal war by exposing the truth of it. It hadn't been for the stupidity of the Nixon administration and all that. He could have ended up. He could have. He could have been. He could have ended up wallowing in prison like yeah. like we've got Julian Assange. Right. Yeah. So. How do we, and, and what do we sacrifice? Well, very few of us have the moral gravity and integrity of Daniel Ellsberg, but even so, we can still do sacrifices. We can sacrifice our time, our resources, our energy that we currently put into other things toward saving humanity and planet Earth, basically. So, so. Uh, I thought it was... Uh, Really, especially the way he framed the global south, which you know, that, that's <laughs> the fact that we say that and people don't even question. Oh, sure, we all know what that is. <laughs> people without any power or any money <laughs> by that category, half the population of the U.S. is on the brink of being in the global south. <laughs> and folks can um, hopefully find this webinar. The whole thing is to go to Richard Falk's website. And that is richardfalk.org. And Richard, the name, Falk is spelled F-A-L-K. And that, of course, is .org. Well, I think that was a really good introduction to this portion that we want to just share with the audience that was done by Dr. Zia Mian, because he really outlines the sacrifice Daniel Ellsberg has done since 1961 when he realized that not only was the Pentagon planning for nuclear war, but that they had actually done the calculations on how many people would be killed uh -huh. and were still planning for nuclear war. And that's when... They still are. Yeah, and they still are. Let's take a listen. This is Dr. Zia Mian with a short introduction 
from the host. Sia Mian, a distinguished uh, expert on uh, nuclear issues, global security, long associated with Princeton University. He has uh, agreed to uh, take Dan's place. He's been, as I have, in close touch with Dan in this period. So in a sense, while Dan isn't here physically, his spirit and our homage to him is very much at the core of our endeavor and in the spirit of what shape stands for. I was hoping, like all of us, able to be in conversation with our dear friend and guide on nuclear weapons issues for such a long time, Daniel Ellsberg, this evening. And it's very sad that uh, his health doesn't permit him to join us, but I hope that we can uh, have a conversation in his spirit. And so let me begin by making uh, three observations of things that uh, I think that I have learned in particular from uh, Daniel Ellsberg's work and thinking, activism, and contribution to the nuclear weapons debate, and then uh, make some remarks about um, how I see some of these things playing out today, politics of nuclear weapons in the situation we find ourselves in, perhaps an observation or two about a path forward. One of the things that Daniel Ellsberg taught us at a very, very early stage in the nuclear arms race after World War II is about how to think about nuclear weapons when they're not being used in war. Because so much of our conversations nuclear weapons have been about Hiroshima and Nagasaki and uh, the catastrophic consequences of the use of nuclear weapons in wartime. And Daniel has written how his first encounter with uh, the idea of nuclear weapons came at a very young age, even before the atomic bomb had been used in Hiroshima, in, in a class that he was taking as a student in school. But when he began his career in thinking about national security politics and strategy, and he was one of the pioneers of how to think about human behavior in political settings as an economist and later as a strategist. And he gave a very, very important lecture in the late 1950s, which was later published by the Rand Corporation, which I commend to you, on the theory and practice of blackmail with specific reference to the threat to use nuclear weapons. And you have to remember that in 1959, we are well past Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it's worth remembering in this specific instance, the United States was not only the first country to use a nuclear weapon in wartime with the destruction of Hiroshima, it was also the first country to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. The first threat to use nuclear weapons explicitly was made by President Truman in the statement he made after the bombing of Hiroshima in a famous uh, statement from the White House, threatening a reign of ruin upon Japan the like of which had never been seen in the history of the world if the Japanese did not surrender. And it was well understood that this was meant more use of uh, nuclear weapons against Japan. But um, And the United States threatened the use of nuclear weapons publicly during the Korean War uh, in the early 1950s. And so in thinking about these issues about the threat and use of nuclear weapons and the, how they fit into statecraft and politics in his lecture from 1959, Daniel called our attention to the political use of nuclear weapons as an instrument of state policy and the practice of deterrence. And he noted that this preeminent use of nuclear weapons as political instruments, as tools of policy, is amenable to not just expansionist powers, but to status quo powers. And in our present situation, you know, one can see that being played out. But in his famous formulation of this, Dan said, call it blackmail, call it blackmail, call it deterrence, call both coercion, the art of influencing the behavior of others by threats. With nuclear weapons, we are dealing with threats of force. This idea that nuclear weapons serve this role as a continuous threat, which is to be manipulated in various ways by states and their leaders uh, in the context of crises and in between crises is something that Daniel was, was 
key in, in bringing our attention to. The second thing that uh, I think that one can learn from uh, reflecting on Daniel's contributions was this astonishing book that it's contained in this astonishing book that he wrote, The Doomsday Machine, The Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. And that describes his very long career in thinking about and being involved in US nuclear war planning and US strategy. And in particular, he writes at the beginning of the Doomsday Machine how in the spring of 1961, at the age of barely 30, he was working in the White House for President Kennedy, and he had drafted a letter for President Kennedy to send to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, asking a very simple question, which Dan had proposed that the president ask. And the question was this, how many people would die as a consequence of the US nuclear war plan? I want to be clear, the question was not how many people would die in a nuclear war. The question was how many people would die as a consequence of the US nuclear war plan. And the answer that came back within a week to Dan's surprise was of the order of 325 million people. And it came back as this chart, this graph that Dan reproduced from memory in the doomsday machine. And Dan's surprise at this answer of 365 million coming back to the president within a week was that he had not imagined that the military knew the answer to this question. He had assumed they would have to go work it out or admit that they didn't know the answer. And when the answer came back that the answer, it was 325 million, he wrote a second letter on behalf of President Kennedy, a follow-up question, which is how many people would die from the US nuclear war plan more broadly than just indirect adversary states? And the answer that came back was 600 million people, because what the military added to the original number was the additional 100 million deaths in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, and in states bordering the Soviet Union and China. And as I said, this did not include the US deaths from um, a possible Soviet counterstrike with their nuclear weapon. And in his book, The Doomsday Machine, Daniel says that it was seeing this chart that made him realize that his life's purpose was to prevent such a plan ever being carried out. And he argued that the existence of such a plan in and of itself was an evil thing. You're listening to Professor Zia Meehan on Daniel Ellsberg Continuing Sacrifice to Get the Word Out About Nuclear War. And the third takeaway that I have from Daniel Ellsberg's writing was that Dan concludes his book with the observation that in his judgment, human beings as a species and as the way in which we have organized into nation states and ideas of nationalism and the use of force and war, he says, we are not a species to be trusted with nuclear weapons. And what my version of this is, German philosopher Gunter Anders called the Promethean discrepancy, that this is the gap between our ability to produce the end of the world and our ability to imagine this end, to represent it and to control it. We have created something that is beyond our capacity to manage. We are not a species that can be trusted with nuclear weapons. We can make them, but we can't manage them. And this idea of having created for ourselves a possible destiny that is beyond our control is something that has been known for over 100 years. If you go back to 1903 with the beginnings of the scientific understanding of the instability of the atom, and the possible release of atomic energy and radioactivity. In 1903, one of the early atomic scientists made this observation in a public lecture in London that if it could be tapped and controlled, atomic energy would become an agent in shaping the world's destiny. And what came to his mind in 1903, this agent that would shape the world's destiny was not an agent that would be a force for good, but the, he says that the man who put his hand on the lever of atomic energy would possess a weapon by which he could destroy the earth if he chose. So this is a decade before World War I. But this idea that this new science and technology puts into the hands of human beings and their political institutions a capacity not just to destroy cities or countries, but to destroy the world. So the world ending nature of atomic energy and its potential in the hands of 
human beings and political agents has been around for a very long time. And Dan has helped kind of focus our attention on some key aspects of how this has come to pass and how it manifests itself. One of the things that the young Daniel Ellsberg you know, didn't know and that we now know and is just how political leaders at the highest level have thought about nuclear weapons. And we now know that in April of 1945, almost to the minute when the president of the United States, um, Harry Truman, was told for the first time about the atomic bomb program. His secretary of war, what we would call the secretary of defense, came to see him and gave him a briefing about the almost completed Manhattan Project, the secret program to build the first nuclear weapon. And in his diary and in his memo, which is now available for everyone to read, the Secretary of War told the President of the United States that this weapon that is almost finished would be the most terrible weapon ever known in human history, and that the world would be at the mercy of such a weapon, and modern civilization might be completely destroyed. And so Truman did nothing to stop the weapon program, having been presented by this judgment of the possibilities of what was at stake here. Instead, the United States went on and tested the first nuclear weapon in July of 1945, and then used it against Hiroshima in August of 1945, at which point President Truman noted in his diary that this is the greatest thing in history. And the United Nations that is founded at the end of World War II took upon itself as its first task, the need for a plan for the elimination of nuclear weapons. At this time, the United States is the only country with nuclear weapons. All it would have been required would be for the United States to make the decision to abandon its nuclear weapons program, dismantle the handful of nuclear weapons it has in a transparent and verifiable way, and begin a process of creating an international system for managing this new science and technology. And so resolution one of the United Nations calls for a commission to make specific proposals for the elimination of nuclear weapons. This was the first agenda item of the United Nations. And Einstein and others tried in their own way to launch education and activism programs to deal with the threat of nuclear weapons, arguing that as citizens of a world community, we now share a common peril because of nuclear weapons. But it is this notion of a world community and of citizenship of a world community as a necessary approach to dealing with the threat that nuclear weapons posed that was a pivotal uh, perspective to go beyond the nation state and national leaders in dealing with this situation. And the scientists who had built the uh, atomic bomb for the United States urged their government, the United States government, that even if it could build such thermonuclear weapons, hydrogen bombs, it should not do so. And the reasons they gave were this thermonuclear weapons would be a weapon of genocide because it carries even further than the atomic bomb itself, the policy of exterminating civilian populations. And this was their words in a secret report that they wrote to the US government in 1949. And that they said that the United States could actually chart a path to a different future by making clear that the United States, they said, in determining not to proceed to develop this new super bomb, the United States would have a unique opportunity to provide by example some limitations on the totality of war and thus of limiting the fear and arousing the hopes of mankind. In other words, that by accepting a unilateral restraint on developing yet more terrible nuclear weapons, the United States had a second chance to try and begin a process to reduce the risk and consequences of nuclear war. Their advice was rejected, and the United States tested its first nuclear weapon in 1952. It was 700 times more destructive energy than the Hiroshima bomb. The mushroom cloud was 30 miles high and 100 miles wide. And it was with these weapons and the combination of thermonuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles that finally that lever by which a man could destroy the world if he chose um, became real.
And many of the newly independent countries from the European colonial empires um, recognize the urgency of the need to address nuclear dangers. And it's often forgotten that key leadership in thinking about and directing global attention towards the need for nuclear disarmament and how to frame nuclear disarmament as a collective responsibility and not just as a responsibility of the states with nuclear weapons comes from these post-colonial states. In the very famous Bandung conference, uh, the first conference of post-colonial states from Africa, Asia, and the Middle East in 1955, one of the key statements deals with the urgency of the need for a prohibition of the production, testing, and use of nuclear and thermonuclear weapons. And the formulation is because this is imperative to save humankind that the nations of Asia and Africa have a duty towards humanity and civilization to proclaim their support for disarmament. So even if they don't have the bomb, they have a collective responsibility to humankind to pursue this goal with all the means at their disposal. And similarly, Dr. King in the United States is making a similar case that the possibility of freedom and emancipation into the future for humankind means addressing atomic war, because otherwise our possibility to construct a human future is curtailed by this threat. And the emerging women's movement also takes on the urgency of nuclear weapons. And so one of the things that Daniel devotes his life to after 1961, um, in terms of his efforts within administrations in the United States, as he writes in his book, and then after leaving government and the release of the Pentagon Papers uh, as an activist outside, was to deal with this question of how can we reduce the risk and consequences of nuclear war. He tried heroically to change US nuclear war plans and writes in his book about how he failed to make any significant difference in US nuclear war plans, despite his enormous access uh, to the highest levels of government uh, in the 1960s. And that um, in that sense, the capacity of institutions inside government to address the nuclear danger uh, was profoundly more limited than people imagine. And therefore, much more needed to be done from outside government, as others had were also arguing at the same time. And at the same time as Daniel Ellsberg is in the Kennedy White House, the General Assembly of the United Nations passed a famous resolution saying that the use of th nuclear and thermonuclear weapons would be contrary to the rules of international law and to the laws of humanity. And the United States and its allies in Europe uh, voted against this resolution. And this resolution, in my mind, marks one of the key moments of the polarization of nuclear politics at the world level in this particular frame between the idea of the rules of international law and the laws of humanity and the idea of a global community and the role of majority and the democratic processes for making collective decisions versus the national interests of a handful of states and of the role of military alliances in managing uh, world order. In 1968, Robert McNamara, who was Secretary of Defense at the time that uh, Dan was in the White House, made a now often overlooked speech in which McNamara said that the last 20 years, you know, basically since Hiroshima and then the, the nuclear arms race, that we have come to call this the atomic age. And he says, every future age of man will be an atomic age. And that if humankind is to have a future at all, it will be a future overshadowed with the permanent possibility of thermonuclear holocaust. And about that fact, we are no longer free. And I would argue that Daniel Ellsberg's struggle since he came to terms with the existence of nuclear weapons has been to try and contest this claim that every future age will be overshadowed with the permanent possibility of thermonuclear holocaust. And that there are many now uh, uh, who have been engaged in exactly this effort as part of a collective effort at seeking freedom from this future. One of the things that Daniel has focused a lot of attention on in recent years in particular has been the fact that 
modern science has begun to understand and explain the terrible consequences of nuclear war in terms of both immediate death of human beings, but also the catastrophic consequences for societies and of the planetary ecosystem on which uh, human society depends. And so he's focused a lot of time and effort in understanding and explaining to people uh, in his writings and talks this idea of the current understanding of nuclear winter, how the smoke from burning cities uh, ignited by nuclear weapons would be lofted into the high into the atmosphere and would persist for a decade or more. And the darkness that would be created at the surface of the earth by this layer of smoke and soot in the atmosphere would cause uh, a catastrophic collapse in agriculture and natural ecosystems that rely on sunlight and uh, failure of regulation in terms of temperature and precipitation, um, meaning that there would be a dramatic drop in both uh, rainfall and temperature leading in some cases to temperatures below that of uh, the last ice age. And that the number of nuclear weapons it would take to trigger such catastrophic collapse is much smaller than had been imagined some decades ago. Because as our understanding of atmospheric physics and chemistry has increased with climate change models, uh, then we realize that the climate system is much more sensitive to these disruptions than had been previously understood. And so the recent understandings are that, you know, we would be uh, in a position where uh, it would take a decade or longer for temperatures uh, to recover. And certainly in the case of war between the United States and Russia with both of them possessing well over a thousand nuclear weapons ready to use, that billions of people would die as a consequence from the global collapse of food systems uh, and environments in this period. So in terms of to wrap up now, where are we now in the present threat? We know that in the context of the war in Ukraine, President Putin of Russia has threatened on more than one occasion the use of nuclear weapons. And the threats have been made with the same kind of ambiguity that has characterized the use of nuclear threats since President Truman made that very first nuclear threat in August 1945. Truman's formulation was a reign of ruin like the world has never been seen before. And President Putin talks about using all means at our disposal with everyone knowing and recognizing that Russia has nuclear weapons and there was a major Russian nuclear war exercise just before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Biden, for his part, has recognized publicly that even the ideas of a tactical nuclear war or the first use of tactical nuclear weapons uh, by Russia in the context of Ukraine leads to the possibility of escalation, which would end up with Armageddon. So the idea of limiting a nuclear war to the use of one or a handful of tactical nuclear weapons is not one that President Biden sees as being credible. And we now know from U.S. Strategic Command um, that in their own nuclear war exercises, that this escalation is actually something that they see and have no means to control. General John Hyten, the head of Strategic Command, a few years ago in a public statement, described the Global Thunder nuclear war exercise uh, of Strategic Command. And I believe a new Global Thunder nuclear war exercise um, is upcoming. It's an annual exercise where they rehearse nuclear war. And General Hyten said publicly, and you can read the transcript of his remarks, he says, it ends the same way every time. It ends bad, and the bad meaning it ends with global nuclear war. And General Hyten went on to say that they cannot find at Strategic Command a way to get off the process of escalation where one weapon leads to more weapons, leads to more weapons, leads to more weapons until there is all-out nuclear war. At the same time as a recognition that nuclear war planning cannot control itself and that it leads to Armageddon, the United States and the other nuclear weapon states, there are only nine, are all committing to continuous processes of modernizing and advancing their nuclear arsenals. The US plan about which we know the most, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with, uh, anticipates spending over $1.5 trillion over the next 30 years on new nuclear warheads, new missiles, new planes, new submarines. Many of these systems will be not in deployment for 20 or 30 more years yet. 
and will be in service almost until the end of the 21st century. The military officers that will be responsible for managing these airplanes, submarines and missiles have not been born yet. But the systems that they will be responsible for, the United States is already making commitments to the production of those systems. And the arms control processes of treaties and agreements of various kinds so painfully and agreed with such difficulty during the Cold War have all started to unravel. As many of you know, uh, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty of 1972 was considered by many people to be the foundation of arms control because it accepted the policy of restraint that you would restrain even your own defense against nuclear weapons because the pursuit of a defense would lead the other side to build more nuclear weapons and lead to an arms race. And the United States became the first country ever to withdraw from a nuclear arms control treaty in 2002, when the Bush administration withdrew. And the reason given for this withdrawal, a decade after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, was that times have changed. In other words, in a new geopolitical reality, there was no reason for the United States to accept this kind of restraint on itself. And other treaties that were agreed also have been withdrawn from both by the United States and by Russia. And the last remaining treaty, the New START Treaty, agreed uh, under President Obama in uh, 2010, uh, will expire in February of 2026. And that will end agreed limits on the number of deployed strategic nuclear weapons. So the flip side of all of this is this effort by everybody else to try and pursue nuclear disarmament uh, from the ground up, even though they have no nuclear weapons. And there is a network of nuclear weapon-free zones around the world uh, with more than 100 countries as members, which is more than half of all the countries in the world who have agreed among themselves not to have nuclear weapons um, or to possess nuclear weapons or to allow nuclear weapons to be stationed on their territory because they have pursued the vision proposed by Alvar Myrdal, the Swedish diplomat in the 1970s, that we should not be submissive and limit our efforts to what we can do only when the superpowers agree among themselves. Myrdal argued that lesser states should be prepared to proceed on their own. We cannot leave the world hostage to the symmetry of great powers and their national interests and their domestic political processes and institutions. And the nuclear weapon free zone treaties are one aspect. And the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons is the other aspect of this, where um, in 2017, 122 countries agreed um, the text of a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons. It is a comprehensive prohibition and not only to develop, test, produce, manufacture, acquire, or possess nuclear weapons, it prohibits the use and the threat of use of nuclear weapons. In that, it prohibits reliance on nuclear deterrence, the threat of use of nuclear weapons as an instrument of national policy. And it requires states to uh, eliminate their nuclear weapon programs and facilities through a verifiable time-bound plan. Now, I want to be clear here that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was agreed among non-weapon states. The nuclear weapon states refused to be party to these negotiations and have tried to prevent progress on treaty negotiations and implementation. Under the Trump administration, the United States wrote a letter to all the signatories of the treaty, urging them to unsign the treaty. That just the existence of this treaty in and of itself and the idea of having parties to this treaty was something the United States at that time would not accept. But the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons does not necessarily require that each nuclear weapon state just give up its nuclear weapons and join the treaty. It allows for nuclear weapon states to agree among themselves through a process of negotiation means to join the treaty where the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons provides an architecture and goalposts for arms control negotiations among nuclear armed states. The treaty says these are the obligations that we believe are appropriate and that we have accepted. These could be the obligations 
that you seek to agree in negotiations among yourself and that you agree and propose plans for the elimination of your nuclear weapon programs and facilities through a verifiable time-bound plan that you believe is appropriate among yourselves because that is a requirement of our treaty. And once you have agreed all these things, then you can bilaterally, multilaterally, or all together join our treaty. Uh, and we would then all be bound by the same architecture of a nuclear disarmament set of obligations. So the treaty allows for this framework approach where the nuclear armed states could negotiate paths to entry among themselves, where they accept the obligations as the goals for their negotiations. Um, in the same way that the United Nations resolutions in the past have often set goals for negotiations. So the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons can be seen as a setting of goals for nuclear weapon states for their negotiations to pursue nuclear disarmament. So with that, I'll stop. That was the discussion on the special SHAPE webinar. And SHAPE, of course, stands for Saving Humanity and Planet Earth. And that was a webinar that was supposed to have Daniel Ellsberg. And hopefully Mr. Ellsberg will recover and get back into his activism quickly. But that was the discussion by Dr. Zia Mian. And to find more about this, the best place I've found is to go to Richard Falk's website, and that is richardfalk.org. And Richard, the name, Falk is spelled F-A-L-K, and that, of course, is .org. And that's where you can find more of Richard Falk's uh, work, and uh, hopefully the webinar, uh, with uh, the full webinar, with Zia Mian. So, with that, all right. So, how are we going to finish up with a song on this one? <laughs> I know. I'll check in with friend of the show, Janet Bates. I'm sure she has a song in her collection that would be just perfect. And of course, here's Janet and her song with this seed, because Earth Day and Daniel Ellsberg has been planting seeds of peace since the '60s. With this seed, I plant the hopes of what I might reap in the fall. May it rest a little while until the sun has warmed the soil. When it is ready to, I hope that it will send a little root, a little deeper towards the sun, a little stem. With the seed, I plant tomorrow's. Would not be here today were it not for someone clever who was planting yesterday. Man has always favored gems that catch the sun a certain way, but there is no and the one I plan today For a ruby cannot shelter me from the icy winds And a lump of gold cannot supply the air that we breathe in All the darkness in the world a hungry child will never feed So why are we counting diamonds when we should be counting seeds? It's the seed that fuels the part of me that loves to watch it grow From the tiny little groundswell Where the sun can shine upon The leaves in photosynthesis Can show us how it's done My grandfather was a farmer Guess he passed that on to me 